Okay, well, we're going to start our study on, on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at Matthew 5 today and just work through verse by verse to the end. don't know how many sessions it's going to take us, but we're going to just go through verse by verse as long as it takes. So let's start with, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come here because we want to learn the teaching of your dear Son. And Lord Jesus, we also ask that your special blessing will be with us as we try to get to grips with the essence of what the Lord Jesus wanted from us and the manifesto of his kingdom. So, Father, please guide us and give us the strength that we need to submit our lives to your will and to the will of your Son in the way that you want us to. So please open our eyes to these wonderful words for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of all he taught, all he was, and of course his death above all. Please help us, Father, to have the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts. In his name, Amen. Right, so Matthew chapter 5, I suggest you have Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, since you have Matthew chapter 5 open in front of you, because as I said, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse for as long as it takes, as many weeks, months, or whatever as it might take. Because it seems to me that for us who have already believed in the Lord, it seems to me that the Sermon on the Mount and the account of the resurrection and crucifixion of the Lord should be something that we are continually going over. Because here, in these three chapters here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the, the manifesto of, of the kingdom. We have what ultimately the Lord Jesus wants uh, from us. We have the quintessence of his, his teaching and his essence. So then, verse 1, seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and his disciples came unto him. So the first thing we take from that is that the, the Lord Jesus here is instructing his disciples. Now I know that in Luke, this is, a lot of this material is repeated later, sort of, to the masses. But Jesus began, his teaching style was to, to get his disciples uh, clearly understanding what he is all about. And so he went up into a mountain, and the disciples had to go up to him. And I think, in a sense, at the beginning of his ministry, he was showing that if you want to really get to grips with my teaching and the essence of who I am, you've got to make some effort. That's why he didn't uh, start this off right in front of everybody in the temple or, or some open place. Uh, he went up a mountain. And that is, I think, how it is also with us. That if you want the real personal connection with the Lord Jesus, you've got to go up the mountain. You've got to make some kind of effort on your part. And of course, going up a mountain and sitting down and teaching his laws, his principles, this is exactly the idea of Moses going up Sinai and receiving the essence of the old covenant and giving it to, to Israel. And so... The Sermon on the Mount, in a sense, is the equivalent to the giving of the law. And that's why the Lord Jesus at times quotes from the law, the Ten Commandments, and says, well, okay, but what I'm telling you is this. So I would say that the Beatitudes particularly, which we're going to read now, are really his equivalent of the, the Ten Commandments. So he opened his mouth, verse 2, and taught them. And I think that Matthew, under inspiration, felt the sense of occasion that he opened his mouth and out of his mouth there came this manifesto of his kingdom, the essence of what he is all about and his teaching. So blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Now blessed, as you probably know, basically means happy. That's the idea. Uh, blessed or happy. Joyful are the poor in spirit. Now, this Greek word for poor literally means the crouchers, those who are absolutely desperate, those who are desperate in, in spirit. And so often the Lord Jesus invites us to see ourselves as the poor. You remember the, the desperate poor widow in Luke 18, verse 3, who's begging for deliverance from, uh, from her, her, her landlord, or the, the one who's taking her to court. Um, this is absolutely um, us, absolutely, every one of us. So then we are straight away being told that you're desperate. And of course that resonates in the spiritual mind with exactly how the, the humble, genuinely spiritual person will feel, that I am desperate, 
I am nothing less than absolutely desperate for him. And he, he says that they shall be uh, blessed are those that mourn, verse 4, for they shall be comforted. This is very much the idea of Isaiah chapter 40. And when we looked at Isaiah 40 in a, in a previous study, uh, I made the point that John the Baptist is the voice that is coming uh, to Israel, making the people ready for the coming of the King of Glory. And I think Jesus is assuming that that has been achieved, and then comfort, comfort ye my people. He's saying, well, this is the, the comfort that I am, am offering to you. And so, in a sense, the kingdom of God could have come in the first century if Israel had been obedient, if they had uh, accepted um, he, the, the, the work of John the Baptist and the, the, uh, the message of the Lord Jesus. It could have come then. Then the, the king of glory, in terms of Isaiah 40, could have come to, to Zion. John prepared the way, he made the, uh, <clears throat> the way straight, but unfortunately it seems that Israel would not. They did not want that. And so it seems to me that God has set up his purpose in various ways so that there's all kinds of possible futures, all kinds of, of possible fulfillments. Things could have come true at a certain time, um, but they, they didn't. Uh, but God's purpose is not thwarted. He continues to drive it through as far as he can with, with people. And so, uh, verse 5 uh, blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And of course, the idea of inheriting the land, you might know the Hebrew and Greek words for, for earth and land are the same, uh, goes right back to the, the promises to Abraham. And it's Psalm 37, verse 29, that I think he has in view here, that says that uh, the righteous shall inherit, or the meek shall inherit the, the land and dwell there forever. Yes, it is a good proof that the kingdom of God shall ultimately be on earth and not in heaven. But the idea is that it is humility which leads to inheriting the earth. The Jewish mindset, which was in the, the minds of the people who first heard the message, was of course that it's the seed of Abraham that shall inherit the earth. I'm okay, I'm from the seed of Abraham, that's good. But the Lord's point was, no, it's the humble, it's the meek who are going to inherit the earth. And so humility in his opening manifesto, becomes of absolute paramount importance. And this is so often taught in both the Old and New Testament. In Zephaniah 2, verse 3, Seek Yahweh, seek meekness. So God is parallel with humility, with meekness. That is what he wants above all things. And God himself, in a sense, has a humility to him. Because he doesn't ask us to be anything other than who he essentially is. And there is a sense of humility, I, I find, in, in God's whole dealings with us. And so often in the prophets, time and again, pride is what is cited as the reason why various nations are to be destroyed, etc., etc. Pride is the problem. We see that in our human relationships. Pride is the issue. Humility is of the essence, and pride is the, the epitome of sin. Now, in that case, we should be more than aware, more than aware, that any move towards arrogance in us or pride is absolutely so distasteful to God. This is right at the start of the Lord's teaching. He's saying, humility is of the essence. That is what I want more than anything else. And of course, that's so hard because we live... Not only with a nature that has a, a tendency towards arrogance, but we also live with people of a, within a society where pride is glorified, even in religious terms and even Christian terms. But that is not, as I say, what ultimately God, God wants at all. Now, verse 6, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's interesting that all those terms there... Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be filled. This is all language that you meet in Luke chapter 1 about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke 1 verse 48, Mary was blessed above women. And she says herself that, <clears throat> Luke 1 53, uh, that the hungry, that's herself, has been filled. 
very same words. So, uh, and that's in Mary's uh, song of, of thanks to, to God for being called to, to bear Messiah. So it seems to me that consciously or unconsciously, the Lord Jesus is saying that his mother is the epitome to him of what he's appealing for. Those who are hungry, but are blessed, and shall be filled. This is, can't be mistaken, for an allusion back to his mother. Now, of course, he owed a lot to his mother, uh, as we all owe to, to our mothers. And, of course, she was human, Mary. But um, you could say that part of the, the final picture of the Lord Jesus as the perfect righteous Son of God, without sin, was partly, partly, a result of his, his mother's work with him. And that's a, a tremendous thought. So he sees in her the epitome of what he is, is teaching to people. And in fact, in the, the language that the angel uses to Mary, when the angel comes and says, I've got good news, I've got a gospel for you, you could argue that in Luke's gospel at least, Mary is set up as, as it were, the first person to hear and believe the good news about Jesus. Now, these first four Beatitudes talk about blessed people. And if you look at what they're like, they are spiritually poor, crouches, that is absolutely spiritually desperate, verse 3. Verse 4, they are mourning. And the Old Testament associations of mourning are typically mourning in repentance and mourning at uh, judgment for sin that we deserve. Verse 5, the meek, those who are cut down to size. And verse 6, those who desperately would like to be more righteous than they are. They hunger and thirst to be more righteous. So straight away, you see an appeal directly to people like you and me, who would love to be more spiritually minded than we are, who consider ourselves spiritually desperate, who mourn for our sins, and feel that sense of, of meekness, of cut-downness in our lives because of that. So he's saying, look, my message, the essence of my good news of the kingdom, is for those of you just like that. And of course this is so different to the appeal of Judaism, which was to the righteous, um, and those who reckon that they, they were pretty good. And of course the appeal, I'm afraid, of a lot of forms of Christianity, which appeal to, unfortunately, the, the self-righteous. And in fact, a lot of forms of religion per se, full stop, uh, appeal to those who, who want justification for themselves, for their own self-righteousness. And so then here we're getting this picture quite differently, uh, of the righteous as those who are not very righteous. And it's them who shall be blessed, who shall be happy in the last day. And even now, it is good news for the spiritually desperate. And straight away, the Lord then has grabbed our attention, because anyone who's genuine, who's a genuine Christian, who is genuinely spiritual, will say, yeah, that's me. That's me. And yes, I desperately want to be better than I am. I'm aware of my sins, but that's every one of us. Now, of course, this idea of righteousness, you, you can interpret it as justice. But I think the word is generally used in the New Testament, especially in, uh, in Paul, in, in Romans especially, uh, with reference to being justified from sin. Righteousness is, though it is a justification, ultimately, from sin. And I think that sort of goes on, that the theme carries on in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, that is, those who forgive, for they shall obtain mercy, they shall obtain forgiveness, they shall obtain this, this patient mercy from, from God. The question, of course, is, when is all this going to happen? Is this a prediction of what shall happen in the last day when the Lord comes? Well, it is that. But as with so much of Bible teaching, especially the teaching of Jesus, it is a good news for here and now. It's not all jam tomorrow. And all the way through, you can see aspects of 
these blessings coming true in human life right now. For example, he says, they shall be filled. Well, it's the same word later on in Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, about the filling of the multitude who came to hear Jesus. He fills them with, with bread. So all the kingdom blessings have some element of fulfillment in this life. So verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, how then do, do we show mercy? Is it simply in forgiving? Well, I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount, because it is the, the essence of the Lord's instruction about, uh, about righteousness, is, um, is alluded to multiple times in the, in the later New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. Paul is alluding to the teaching of Jesus, I would argue, uh, once every other verse on average, and I've written them all out, actually, in my uh, book about Paul. Um, but th the point here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's that phrase, they shall obtain mercy. That's alluded to by Paul in 2 Timothy 1.16, where he talks about Onesiphorus, and he says, he searched me, he, he looked out for me when I was in prison, came to visit me. Um, May he obtain mercy of the Lord in that day. These are the same Greek words. So, showing mercy was going to visit someone in prison. And of course, there was the assumption in those days, as there is these days, that if you're in prison, that's because you're guilty. And it was, in a sense, a, a showing of mercy. And I think, therefore, that uh, really... In, uh, in the first instance, a lot of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is, in this context, about life amongst believers. Because it was given to the disciples, as I said, here in Matthew, the, the crowds were not there. When he saw the crowds, he went away from them up into the multitude, uh, up into the mountain, and the disciples came to him there. So a lot of this teaching is actually about what we might call ecclesial life, about church life, about the relationship between believers. Incidentally, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you read Luke's parallel in Luke 6 verse 22, instead he says that those who are reviled and excluded will be blessed. And there's a guy called Samuel Lax who has uh, translated the Sermon on the Mount, and much of the New Testament, or the teaching of Jesus, uh, back into Aramaic, uh, and back into Hebrew, in order to try to get behind what might actually have been said, because the Lord Jesus was not speaking here in Greek. And <clears throat> he's come up with another reading here. Happy are they who are excommunicated, for they shall receive mercy. So straight away, the Lord Jesus, if that's right, uh, it is appealing to those who feel that they are uh, not as righteous as they should be, who are spiritually poor, mourning for their sins, and that kind of makes sense, that, that they also were the ones who were religiously excommunicated from the synagogues who were treated as the, uh, the unspiritual. And verse 10, I think, continues that. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The idea is to drive away. Um, actually, it's the same word just back in Matthew 3, uh, sorry, Matthew 1, verse, uh, verse 23. Sorry, I have the uh, wrong reference there. Uh, anyway, the word is translated elsewhere, those that are driven away. <clears throat> and so being thrown out of the synagogue was a major and a frequent occurrence for those who came to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm here to appeal to those like you to those who are on the edge, to those who are not uh, felt to be mainline, religious, uh, spiritual people. But you want to be, but the system won't let you be. Now, there's a bit of a rebel in all of us, and I think that it's there, it should be there in each of us, that we realize that even if you're right in the middle of a religious uh, organization, the church, ecclesia, etc., you realize all the same that you are not ideal that somehow you feel somehow isolated by your own sense of, of failure. This is good news for such people. But that is the prerequisite 
for initially coming to Jesus. Now, I don't think you stay like that as you mature in Christ. You become more confident in his grace. But looking at trying to, to get a second naivety and come to the message of Jesus for the first time and see what he's really saying, I, I think the, the outline picture is that this is a message, it is a good news for those who want to be spiritual but are not, and who are not seen as spiritual uh, within their communities. And of course that is why raw Christianity of the Sermon on the Mount nature is so attractive to many people like that. It's why sinners flock to hear Jesus. It makes perfect sense that it was the sinners, it was the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the excluded, who came to him and who later became the, the basis of the Christian church. Now, I've said that all through, the words of the Sermon on the Mount are being quoted and alluded to later on in the New Testament because this is the, the bottom line of Christian teaching. So, just an example in verse 11, Blessed are you when men shall revile you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. First of Peter 4.14, Peter quotes that, and of course he would have heard it live, as it were, when he says that we are blessed or happy if we are reviled for the sake of Christ's name. So it seems to be that Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. Men are going to persecute you, verse 10, verse 11, they're going to revile and persecute you, and they're going to say all manner of evil against you falsely. So he's starting off by saying, look, this is going to happen. And remember what I said, that this sermon was given initially to the disciples, and you can tell by all the allusions to, uh, to it in later New Testament writings that it is, in one sense, all about church life. It's about relationships between believers. When these things happen, when there is persecution, when there is slander, when there is reviling, whether it's from the world or whether it's from within our our own community of believers, we tend to think that that's something shocking, and we are caught, as it were, unawares. And a lot of people give up their faith because of that, as the parable of the sower uh, again alludes to, to all this. The teaching of Jesus is so intertwined. He keeps on uh, alluding back to things that he said earlier, defining them, taking them further, as any good teacher does. And so the parable of the sower is picking this up and saying, that is going to happen. It's inevitable for those who receive the seed, the good news, the word of the gospel. It's going to happen and some people fall away straight away because of it. But Jesus is saying right up front here, right at the beginning of his message, that that is going to happen. It's like the principle back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. There is going to be this tension, there is going to be this persecution, this problem, major problem, in personal relationships because of our sticking to his principles. Now, of course, he does say in verse 11, when they do all these things against you falsely, for my sake. It's not as if if you have persecution or problems in relationships which are your own fault, you can turn around and take comfort from this. No, this is fallout, if you like, for his sake. That is for the sake of your following of his principles. This will inevitably come. Now, <clears throat> then in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, so persecuted they the prophets. Um, Paul quotes that, or alludes to that, in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4, and he talks about how he had been uh, badly spoken of, uh, etc., and yet, despite that persecution from his brethren, he rejoiced and was exceeding glad in that persecution. So again, he applies it within his ecclesial context. Moving on now, <clears throat> verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now salt inevitably affects, by reason of what it is, whatever is next to it. And this carries on into verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill, cannot be hid. It cannot be that we are secret Christians. It cannot be that sitting behind a computer screen, I uh, accept intellectually certain propositions about Jesus, I get baptized, I read the Bible, and I pray to God, and that's my business, and my religion is my religion. And unfortunately, that is 
in the internet uh, generation, that is an increasingly attractive proposition. Jesus is saying, no. If you're salt, you are salt. And you inevitably will affect whatever is next to you. And it's the same with light. Light inevitably is seen. It cannot be hid like the city that is set on, on a hill. You'll notice that he doesn't say um, <clears throat> you ought to be the salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth. Unless we are going to make some impact upon those around us, and I'm not necessarily talking in terms of evangelism that is going out, as it were, and preaching and converting people. Well, that, that is not also out of view here. Um, but just generally, if we are not going to be producing something in the lives of others around us, then we have not got the whole idea that we are sought if we are in Christ. He was the light of the world, as he said, I am the light of the world. And here he says, 14, you are the light of the world. If we are baptized into Christ, then whatever is true of him becomes true of us. And so it follows that we cannot hide ourselves from view, as it were. It has been my uh, fate or path in life or whatever to have quite a, a lot to do with, uh, with Muslims, people in, uh, in very extreme Muslim situations such as Iran and elsewhere, uh, coming to Christ for the first time, being baptized, and they say, oh, look, this must be absolutely secret. Uh, don't tell anyone. Don't put it on the Internet. Is it okay if I still go to the mosque even though I, I don't believe it all? Um, I, if I come out openly with my faith, I may be arrested, killed for conversion away from Islam, etc., and, you know, I, I think of um, uh, Naaman, how he, he said, uh, or oh, is it okay if I go into the house of women with my master? And Elisha sort of says, that's okay. Uh, you can do that. And, you know, uh, Naaman says, well, I don't really believe it, but, you know, it's just difficult socially as the commander of the Syrian army not to do that. Um, yeah, okay, Elisha says, okay, you can do that. And so, on that basis, I have rather grudgingly said, yes, okay. Um, not that I have any power to give anyone the, the yes or no, the red light or the green light or whatever. Um, just thinking of myself, if I were in their position, probably I would be tempted to do the same, and who knows, I probably would. But what I want to say is this, that in every one of those cases where I feel there has been a genuine conversion, they've got in trouble for having converted. Why? Because it is impossible to hide it. It is impossible. Even if a guy says, yeah, I'm not going to tell anyone about my new faith, I'm going to keep going to the mosque, I, I'm going to show myself as a, 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 as, a, as a Muslim, even though, you understand, I'm going to like in my heart, I'm with the Lord Jesus, etc. It's impossible to hide it. Sooner or later, that is the desperate phone call, the email, or, or Skype message, or Facebook, or whatever, that, oh, you know, I've gotten a difficulty because, well, I, I said so-and-so to some, some guy, or, well, yeah, a, a fellow noticed that I'm different, some fellow noticed that I've changed, uh, etc. You can't hide it. You cannot hide it. So there's a lot of angst, I feel, amongst uh, a lot of us about, am I preaching enough? Well, I don't think you need to have that angst, because preaching is one thing, in the sense of, you know, outgoing evangelism, and that, I don't think, is for everybody. But we are the salt of the earth, and you cannot, you cannot hide the light. This is quite a theme that we're going to see developing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that one of the reasons why we were called is so that we might have a specific impact upon other people. That is part and parcel, a fundamental part of conversion to Christ. It is not, it cannot be, uh, a case of sitting behind your computer screen saying, yes, I believe, tick all those boxes in my mind, I'm good. And just go and live the life of anybody else out there in this world. There is a visible difference. Not because we're trying to make it, or trying to show off, or force a point, it just comes. That's the idea of salt. 
Now, one characteristic of salt is that it creates thirst. We often feel that nobody's interested, and that is true. Very few people are really interested in what we have to say, until they meet you and me. And if we are the, the salt of the earth, then we will create and provoke that thirst within them. Now, everybody has got some religious conscience. We are mistaken if we think that some people don't have. Everybody has a religious conscience. It's just hidden, it's just subsumed or whatever, um, but it's there. And their encounter with us is what will provoke it and will bring it out. That's very much what it's all about. So then... <clears throat> this is a, a radical call to be outgoing in some sense in our faith. And when the Lord Jesus called the fishermen, the disciples, he said, I am going to make you fishers of men. In one sense, those men that follow Jesus around Galilee, they are us. They are the prototype of all those who shall uh, follow Jesus in later generations. And he says, I'm calling you in order to make you fishers of men. In other words, I'm going to put you through a process. So once you've signed up to the Lord Jesus, this is what he's going to do. He's going to put you through a process that results in you bringing other people into God's kingdom. That's what he's going to do. And the whole range of uh, life situations that he has a hand in, and his teaching of you for your daily reflection upon his word, this is all part of, I will make you, I will put you through a training course to make you fishers of men. It's a lot of talk about going on courses so that we can preach better, but actually you're all on a course taught by the Lord Jesus with him there at work in, in your life to that end. And he, he warns quite strongly there uh, verse 13, if the salt has lost its savour, then it's no good. It is thenceforth good for nothing. And the idea of good there, um, that, that Greek word really means, has the idea of possibility. If it has no more possibility, no more being able, then it will be thrown out. If we are not going to impact those around us, and if we get to a point where actually we cannot do that because we are just simply have put up the barriers and we refuse to operate with God uh, as he tries to make us uh, fishers of men, etc., then really it has no practical use and it therefore be cast out and trodden underfoot. Now that is a phrase used, cast out, about the rejection of the wicked at the last day. And if you want a couple of references, Matthew 13, 48 and John 15, verse 6, we read about the branches that are no good, that don't bear fruit, being cast out, uh, cut off and cast out and burnt up. The treading underfoot by men is also, I think, an idiom for uh, condemnation. Malachi 4.3, the wicked shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day. So it is important how we are impacting others. And we must, as I say, particularly in this uh, very private generation in which we live, uh, a generation where privacy and people going into their shells has become possible to an extent that it never was previously. We've got to really take that that seriously. Now verse 14, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. It's almost as if uh, Jesus foresees the temptation to hide ourselves, to say yes to him, but to hide. And there's a number of instances in the Gospels, particularly Nicodemus, where, and Joseph of Arimathea, where people do try to hide it, but in the end, they have to come out. So there's an element then in our life in Christ which is absolutely open before men and women. We cannot hide it. And you unfortunately meet the, the same word about hiding in Matthew 25, verse 25, where the one talent man hides. He hides the gospel, the talent of the gospel. And for that he's condemned. And 
at first blush, looking at that parable, it seems a bit tough on the guy because he doesn't spend it on himself. He actually wraps it up very carefully and keeps it and gives it back. He doesn't steal it, he doesn't squander it, etc. And actually the word for keeping there, how he keeps it, he preserves it in the napkin, is the same word later on used in the New Testament in Paul's writings about keeping the faith, keeping the doctrines, holding on to it. So he does that, and then the Lord says, okay, you're fired, you're condemned. And the guy's like, but I kept it, I didn't steal it, you have it back. The point is, no, you've got to use this. You cannot hide it and just get on with your life thinking, well, yep, I've, uh, I've hidden the, the gospel. Um, I talked about Joseph of Arimathea, and this word hidden, this Greek word hidden, it again occurs there, John 19, 38, about how Joseph secretly, hiddenly believed. But in the end, God leads you to come out. And particularly, uh, in his case, it was by being at the crucifixion, basically, that made him come out. And I think that is the power of breaking bread and coming again before the crucified Son of God, that how can you be passive to him after you have seen that? How can we hide at all? We're told then that uh, we're like the city that cannot be hid, and Luke 7.24, talking about the Lord Jesus, says that uh, he could not be hid. Luke 7, verse, uh, verse 24 there. Um, <clears throat> again, I have a wrong verse, but... Um, you know the, um, I, I think you know the, the verse that I, I'm talking about, where the Lord says that, uh, where it said about the Lord that he could not be hid. And what I'm trying to say then is that everything that happened to the Lord Jesus in some sense happens to us if we are in Christ. We are him to the world. And when he says that a city set on a hill cannot be hid, that is leading straight on from verse 13 where he says, make sure that you don't lose your saltiness. And I think he's foreseeing the question, well, okay, if I'm the salt of the earth, how can I make sure that I, I don't lose my saltiness? And the answer is, uh, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And I think he's saying that you are there openly in front of people and that is what keeps you from losing your saltiness, by being open and upfront about who you are. And it's not that difficult to, to state that, yes, I have a religion, because religion is, uh, is not unpopular these days, um, to say, yes, well, I'm a religious guy, I have this or whatever. But, of course, it's got to be far more than that, that the light that we shine is, of course, his light. The salt that we are provokes thirst in those people uh, with whom we, we mix. So he says, uh, 15, men don't light a candle and put it under a bucket but on a candlestick so that it gives light to all that are in the house or the household. So then <clears throat> we are a, a light that has been lit in order to give light to others that are in the house. Remember, we said that this, uh, in the first instance, was given to the disciples. This Sermon on the Mount, as recorded here, was given to the disciples. And they, therefore, uh, therefore the, the, the message in the first instance, I think, is about life amongst believers. And so he's saying that the reason you were lit was to give light to others in the household, within the house. Again, I'm calling you fishermen, the Lord Jesus says, so that I might make you fishers of men, so that I might use you in order to influence others. So we are lit in order to give light to others. You see, we cannot be secret believers. There must be some engagement between us and others. And as I say, I'm not necessarily talking about what would be called evangelism or, or preaching, etc. But I am saying, or Jesus is saying, rather, that we are to give light to others within the household. 
And he says that it's lit to be put on a candlestick. Don't forget he's talking here to people from a Jewish background. And I'm sure they would have thought about the candlestick. And he talks about uh, the candlestick. Uh, in the Greek, verse 15, it's to not be put under a bucket, but put on the candlestick. Put on a candlestick is a wrong uh, sense of translation. Uh, the article is there. Put on the candlestick. Well, surely they would have thought of the candlestick uh, in the holy place. It's the same word in Hebrews 9, verse 2, about the, the candlestick in the holy place. So he's saying that, look, in this new Judaism that I'm setting up, what you thought previously was unenterable for you. You are not only in there, but you are that light that's giving light. No wonder, incidentally, if he had the idea, you are to be the light to the Jewish priesthood who are there working. You're to give them light. And of course, a great company of the priests, we read in Acts, did become obedient to, to the faith uh, after the death of Jesus. It was his particular desire that these religiously excluded people whom he'd picked up and transformed should be the light to the, the religious types. And that ultimately did uh, come to term to, to some extent. Now, why would you put a candle under a bucket? Well, you would put a candle under a bucket out of a fear that the wind would blow it out. But that overprotection of the, the lamp was going to cause the light to go out. I think that's what he's saying. And it's rather uh, similar, I think, to the parable of the, or the lesson of the parable of the, the people who want to go out and root up the weeds. There were wheat and tares, wheat and weeds that were sown. They said, oh, let, let's go up and let's go and root out the, the tares. Let's protect uh, God's truth. And Jesus says, no, because you'll destroy the whole thing. And it's the same here. This fear, fear that the the light might go out, is what leads to the message not being preached and taught. And that has been so true so often in my own uh, uh, observation of church life, ecclesial life, and it probably has been in yours too, I suspect, that this fear that we might lose the light, this fear that the light of God's truth and so forth might be extinguished, this is what, unfortunately, leads to the gospel not going out to people, the light not shining, because we're so paranoid that we might lose the truth. You even get to the point where there are communities and individuals who say, the time for preaching is gone, we've just got to hold on, it's the last days and so forth, we must hold on to uh, the truth that God has given us, that's all we're asked to do. And that's pretty similar, and I fear to the one-talent man saying, I'm going to preserve what you've given me. I'm not going to trade it. And it's that, that lack of engagement which is what leads to people ultimately being rejected. Because the whole point of what Jesus is saying here in the sermon is that I'm giving you this great truth so that you might take it to others. So that you might be a, a source of light for them. Now, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is difficult of interpretation and I think we have to be a bit careful here. Um, I don't think myself that by doing good works, for example, running feeding schemes, and I've spent years running feeding schemes twice a week, uh, so I do know what I'm, I'm talking about to some extent. I, I don't think that good works uh, of themselves um, lead to people coming to Christ. I don't think so. It just doesn't happen. You're given out free food, okay, give me the free food, I'll come take it. Um, I don't think it necessarily leads people to Christ. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that, it seems to me. So then, what does this mean? Because if it's read wrong, it could mean that, oh, well, I will go out and willfully show off my good works so that others notice. And that is totally contrary to what the Lord Jesus is getting at. 
that we should show off, that we should advertise our good works like the, the Pharisees did so that people should come to, to God and to Jesus. No. As I say, a lot of, well, very well-meaning individuals and churches, I think, go totally wrong on this. And so many people have said to me, oh, well, we started, uh, I don't know, doing old people's gardens in our neighborhood of our church. We started clearing garbage, and we started doing this, that, and the other, all these various good deeds. But you know, nobody actually started coming to our church. There's a lot of very fine effort made that actually achieves and produces no fruit. And I think it's because of a misreading of this, this verse. Because as I say, we cannot have a situation whereby we are to willfully uh, advertise our goodness in order to bring others to, to God. That is not, that is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the opposite, that as later on in the sermon we read, your good works must be so as not to appear before men. You must be very careful, the Lord is saying, through this chapter and in chapter 6, not to do good works consciously, let alone so that they are noticed by men. So, let's bear all that in mind as we come to interpret this. So, who are the men? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and they may glorify your Father in heaven. Now, it depends how you translate that, but I want to just suggest that the final part of the verse, and glorify your Father who is in heaven, uh, the sense really is that they, in heaven, will glorify your Father. Let's bear that in mind. Who are the men? Well, verse 15, they are the men who lit the candle. They are the men who lit the candle. So I want to suggest that the men are different to those in the house. Men light a candle, and the light shines before men, uh, and it gives light, verse 15, to all that are in the house. And the men who see this, uh, in heaven, glorify God. Well, reading it like that, you would think then that the, the men are angels then. Because who lit our candle? Who providentially led us to God's truth, to, to Christ in the first place? Well, it was, in the end... Um, God through the ministry of providence which practically works out in terms of the angels. Now, men occur in the parables a number of times. Men, Jesus says, gather the, the, uh, the responsible to judgment. Men sort out the, the good fish from the bad fish. A couple of references, John 15 verse 6 and uh, Matthew 7 uh, 16. Yes, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Um, and uh, John fifteen six that they will gather the uh, the harvest in to to Jesus in the last day. But who actually will do that? Who do those men represent? Who shall gather? Well, Matthew thirteen forty one twenty four thirty one. It is angels who shall be sent out to gather the elect. So I think that we are confirmed there in seeing the men as angels. That they, working on God's behalf, on the Lord Jesus' behalf, light the candle, set us up, light us up, and we are to be not under a bucket but on a candlestick, and we, in their bigger plan, are there to give light to those that are in the house. They, those men, those angels, notice our light, and they see the good works, and in heaven, because the angels are here on earth, and yet they're also in the court of heaven, and they glorify God in heaven. I submit that that is the only interpretation to me that makes sense. And I've thought long and hard about this verse. I've never heard that explanation from anybody else. So that's um, that, this is my take, simply because I cannot see that the idea of willfully displaying works in order to get the uh, acceptance and wise nods for men who then fall down and glorify God because of you showing off your works, I, I just can't see that as making any sense within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which condemns that kind of thing. And as I say, it's not true to at least my experience anyway. But if you see instead that men, that is, the angels, God, Jesus, working through the angels, have brought us 
to believe providentially in him, lit our candle, and they are watching our good deeds, uh, and they are informing God about them, uh, as it were, and glorifying God in heaven right now for what we are doing for others. And that seems to me to, to make sense. So verse uh, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, in later scripture we're told that the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses on the cross. Romans 10 verse 4, The Lord Jesus, supremely in his death, was the end of the law. And yet this uh, idea of fulfilling or ending it's elsewhere translated the goal, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. So I would say that the death of Jesus on the cross ended the law, fulfilled the law, uh, because Jesus hanging there with a perfect mind inside a, a body that had been totally obedient to God, that was the goal of the law. That all those 613 commandments that were given to Moses, if fulfilled, if lived out as they should have been, resulted in Jesus. Resulted in a person like Jesus. They were not thought up by God to be a pain for us to fulfill, for humanity to fulfill. The idea was that if they were completely fulfilled, they led to the perfect man that was in Jesus. They led to death on the cross. And that is what happened with, with the Lord Jesus. And so, he came in order to die. And yet here he says that he, he, he came, I am come, to fulfill the law. And so often he says, I am come, especially in John's Gospel, to, to die on the cross. So then, his death there on the cross was the fulfilling of the law, in that the whole law of Moses led, ultimately, if it was all obeyed, and each piece of uh, commandment legislation dovetailed with others in terms of the psychology of the, the person being obedient, it led to Jesus. It led to someone who was like Jesus, who that is, who did not sin, uh, and who ultimately gave their life on a cross for the salvation of the world. So that is how it came, and it comes about, that the death of the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law. And so he says, verse 18, Till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Jesus was not against the law. There was nothing wrong with the law. As Paul says, it was holy, just, and good. It's just that nobody, apart from the Lord Jesus, actually fulfilled it to the end as he did. Now, jot and tittle, jot refers to the, uh, the jod, the, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is the, the, the little bend or, or point which serves to distinguish some Hebrew letters of, uh, of similar appearance. And so Jesus is saying that, look, right down to the last little dot, to the last little hook that distinguishes Hebrew letters, I'm not against the law. I came here to fulfill it. I am fulfilling it. I shall fulfill it when I die on the cross. So although that law has now been replaced... Let us not think that somehow the law was uh, rubbish, that it was bad or whatever. It was wholly just and good, Paul says. You can see why. Because perfect obedience to the whole package led to the personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Led to a man giving his life for others on the cross. The whole thing is complex, I accept, the 613 commandments or whatever. But the whole thing meshed together was intended for human good and actually was intended to lead to perfection. The law, uh, we read in Hebrews, made nothing perfect. Yet why not? Because of human disobedience. Not because of a fault, as it were, in the law. The fault in the law uh, was because of human failing to, to obey it to the end. One last point for today before we, uh, we finish. 19, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that do and teach them. I have stressed several times that in fact the 
teaching of the Lord here in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, sharing what God has given us is actually part of his whole intention, the whole intention of the gospel. It is not only to do, but to do and teach. But he says that the person who breaks them and teaches others so shall be called the least in the kingdom. Think about that phrase, the least in the kingdom. Matthew 11, verse 11. The least in the kingdom of God shall be greater than John the Baptist. So the guy who is least in the kingdom is still in the kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 40. The least of these my brothers. So I think then that you see in, in this statement that those who break the least commandments and teach men so shall be... Um, in the kingdom, but at least in the kingdom, uh, I think you see there his grace, that he is prepared to accept to some degree a level of intellectual failure, and not only intellectual failure, but dogmatism in that intellectual failure that leads you to teach that to other people. And he says, but okay, you'll be in the kingdom, you'll be the least, but you'll be there. And we notice, of course, that there are degrees of reward, least in the kingdom, and great in the kingdom. And of course, ultimately, it was the Lord Jesus who was greatest in the kingdom. And it's all, I think, the same in Luke 14, verse 9, where the brother who takes the highest place in the ecclesia will be made at the day of judgment with shame to take the lowest place. He's still in the kingdom. He's least in the kingdom. But this whole rearrangement of places, as it were, happens at the day of judgment. And so the idea of being called least in the kingdom, this is really pronounced, that's the idea. And the pronouncement of least and greatest, of course, is at the day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus comes back. My point is that to assume that we can only tolerate within the body of Christ those who are perfectly obedient, or at least they don't uh, break the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get busted, um, and the idea that somebody cannot teach uh, anything other than, than perfectly intellectually pure doctrine, this is a nonsense, because the Lord Jesus is going to accept those people in his kingdom. Finally, the Lord Jesus is the one who shall be greatest in the kingdom. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, Luke one thirty two. So the fact we teach others will be a factor in who we shall eternally be in God's kingdom. So God willing, next time we're going to pick up from verse 20. God bless. Все Володя можно? Да, да, да. This thing is Manuela. It keeps going on to sleep. No, no, the computer. Okay.